We're going to do something different this morning. As I just said to Lance, this is what I dared not do while Christmas celebrations were in full swing, but now that they're over, I'm daring to do it. Um, Also, so we'll be taking a break, continuing our break from our moving through the Gospel of John, um, and also continuing that break uh, next week as well. So next week we'll have another uh, more topical sermon in which we're going to talk about an issue that is very much a cultural phenomenon in the church today. Not, not, not a lot of the big stuff we usually are thinking about. We've already preached on, on those things. But something else. So come back next week if you'd like to find out what that will be about. Um, for this morning, we're going to consider together the place and the circumstances of Jesus' birth. And why that matters to us. Tradition is a really powerful thing. And uh, tradition is not itself a bad thing. We live in an age when uh, it's been popular to throw out tradition and anything traditional must, must be bad or negative or not as good as what's new and so that's been, a, that's been a negative thing. Tradition can be a tool that really helps us to, to guard and to preserve things that are good. Uh, tradition can give us continuity with the past upon which our present is built and for which we should be grateful. Tradition can often be accompanied by a lot of sentiment or we could call it sentimentality and I don't know we're all maybe varying degrees of sentimentality here in this room I can be sentimental about the various traditions in our family um, sometimes I think even in good naturedness I'm, I'm given slight bits of grief about my sentimentality about those traditions and I know there's nothing wrong with this so my question for you this morning is what place does tradition and the sentimentality associated with tradition have in relation to the Word of God? And how often do they become mixed up together without our even knowing that's what's happening? So I'm asking us to step, out, uh, uh, um, to step apart this morning and kind of look from the outside in on ourselves on our own hearts, and how, on what our approach is to our Christianity. One of the causes of the Reformation was the Roman Catholic elevation of tradition to a place of authority, right? That was the problem. The problem wasn't tradition, per se, but the authority that it was granted equal to and even higher than the Scriptures. So, that's why we have the Reformation Sola of Sola Scriptura. Scriptures alone, that was the point. Not tradition and scripture, scripture and tradition, but scripture alone. And we know the biggest issue was the church's wrong teaching on doctrines that affected the gospel. So what I'm talking about this morning is not a doctrine that affects the gospel. But it does come back to the gospel. Everything should. If I ever preach on anything Sunday morning that doesn't come back to a gospel emphasis, then I've not preached it rightly. So we think of the other Reformation solas of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Those were the big things and the things that mattered most. But there were other ways that tradition was blinding people to what the Bible actually said. So it might surprise us to know, it, it surprised me to know, to find out, that in the second half of the 16th century, that's over 400 years ago, a Spanish scholar named Francisco Sanchez criticized the depictions of the nativity in church paintings. And one of his criticisms was that Jesus was not born in a stable, he said, and his parents were not rejected by an innkeeper, as commonly thought, but Mary gave birth in a private home belonging to friends or relatives. Now that's 400 years ago. Sanchez, to be honest, was not a reformer. He was a rationalist. 
So his interest was not in the divine authority of scripture. His interest was in the grammatical meaning of the text. So it was weird. Back in then, you could be a rationalist and still have some concern and interest in, in the Bible and even in religious matters. And, and really, at today, we still have the same thing. So you have plenty of rationalists writing lots of things about the Bible. Well, when Sanchez read Luke chapter 2, which has been immortalized, partly, in a, partly it's not bad, but, <laughs> you know, I think it's Charlie Brown, right? Um, you know, why is Luke chapter 2 so immortalized and sentimentalized? I wonder if it's because of Charlie Brown. I don't know. Well, when he read Luke chapter 2 in the Greek, he did not see an inn and he did not see a stable. Now, that got him into trouble with the Roman Catholic Spanish Inquisition. So he was brought to trial for his challenging of the nativity. Uh, And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church was also not concerned with the authority of Scripture. They were concerned with the authority of the church's tradition. How dare Sanchez suggest the Scriptures don't actually say Jesus was born in a stable because there was no room for him in a local inn. They do say that because the church said they said that. Now, here's my question for us. If we're not so concerned today, none of us are concerned with the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Neither are you probably concerned with my authority, right? (laughs) So, I wonder, why do we resist so strongly, or why might we resist, any biblical tampering with the traditional story of the nativity? And so I want you to know here, my goal is not to say... Throw out your paintings, all your nativity sets, and do this, and if you don't, you're a bad Christian and you're not spiritual. That's that's not the point. My point is just to use this as a way to challenge and prod us as to what extent our Christianity is wedded inappropriately with sentiment and tradition. Is it possible that even today... Sentimentality may give to tradition a power and an authority that rivals the scriptures. I'll ask you it this way. If we take away the inn and the innkeeper and the stable and the animals, do we feel like we've been robbed of a part of Christmas? Now you might say, oh, no, of course not. But wait a minute, think about it. Take that all away. Have you been robbed of a part of Christmas? But then we have, to, we have to ask, what is Christmas, after all? Is it the inn, and the innkeeper, and the stable, and the animals? Or is it the birth of Jesus, our Messiah, God incarnate, God with us? Uh, recently, one man was espousing this, the, the fact that none of this was actually in the, in the text of scripture and, and uh, it was picked up by local news outlets especially tra- traditional uh, conservative ones and, and they were saying that this was of a part with denying the resurrection of Jesus so what do the scriptures say about the nativity of Jesus what do they say and do we care to know um the rest of the sermon, most of it, is in your handout. Um, so you can read along if that helps you. I almost didn't give you anything. But then I thought, well, I'll give you everything. So you can read along, or you can just listen and take that home to look at later. Well, let's read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. So Galilee is in the province in the north. And Nazareth is a city, a village in that, in that province. And he went up, elevation-wise, but down, geography-wise, to Judea 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Luke says, notice, that everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And on our website eventually will be the full sermon manuscript with a bunch of footnotes that examine some issues in the Greek and some grammar and some other stuff that I'm not doing here. So just know that. If you have questions, there's maybe some answers there. But Joseph's own city was Bethlehem. What does this mean, that it was his own city? Well, it probably means more than that it was the city of Joseph's distant ancestors. That it was Joseph's own city because it was actually the city of David many centuries earlier. The language and the way it's even worded in the Greek implies that it's Joseph's, his own city. And so in light of what we know about the Roman census practices, there is absolutely zero evidence that the Romans required people to go to a city of their distant ancestors. Uh, Also, in light of Luke's own language, Bethlehem was probably, at the least, the place where Joseph was born. His own city. This would mean that Joseph's parents lived in Bethlehem. That Bethlehem was his family home. The place where his parents, the place also where other relatives of his likely lived given the way that it was not... Uh, Old Testament, uh, New Testament Israel and Judea was not this place where you know, people, people moved several hundred miles away at a whim like we do today. Um, and so this would likely have been the place where Joseph planned to live with Mary, his betrothed, when he took her to be his wife. Now, his Mary is from Nazareth. Joseph, I'm suggesting, is from Bethlehem. Where will Joseph live with Mary when they're married? The tradition would be in Bethlehem, Joseph's own town. Notice that when Joseph left Nazareth to travel to Bethlehem with Mary, and I'm simply going on the plain reading of the text, which, again, there's other notes that you can look at later that talk about how people disagree with this. But Mary was still Joseph's betrothed. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee in order to register in Bethlehem along with Mary, who was betrothed to him. The the NIV translates, who was pledged to be married to him. So they're not yet married when they leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. Now, Jewish betrothal was way more serious than our modern engagements. And that's why when a modern translation says that they were engaged to be married, that's just bad translation. Um, our engagements can be broken off at a whim, right? Jewish betrothal, you had to divorce your wife to break the betrothal. So even though, so you weren't yet fully married, but you were partially married, (laughs) as it were. So you could call your betrothed, your your wife, your husband, and in order to break the betrothal, it required a writ of divorce, sending her away. However, so what's the difference? How are you not fully married? Well, betrothed couples did not live together, so there was not a sexual consummation. But that's 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 not the only thing. They didn't live together because marriage was not yet formally consummated. Formally. Uh, with the traditional and ceremonial home-taking. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So it was traditional. The groom would take the home-taking. was a big deal. That's when you're married. That's then when you're consummated formally and then followed by sexual consummation. It was while they were still betrothed then that Joseph and Mary left Nazareth to travel to Joseph's own town of Bethlehem and yet... By the time Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, they were living together in a formally consummated marriage. They leave Nazareth, they're not married. 
By the time Jesus is born, they are married. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so explicitly in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, see how it calls him her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he's not just saying, do not be afraid to be intimate with her. He's, he's talking about the formal ceremonies of the home-taking that was traditional in that, in that Judean-Israelite culture. For the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So they were married before Jesus was born, fully married. And he called his name Jesus. Now my question to you then is, when did Joseph take Mary as his wife? Well, certainly not the very day he got up from his sleep, right? The point is that when Joseph got up from his sleep, he immediately began setting in motion the plans to formally consummate his marriage to Mary. They're already betrothed, now let's fully make this marriage official. When did Joseph take Mary as his wife? Not immediately after his dream, but apparently only after he traveled to Bethlehem with his betrothed and before Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. And where was it traditional for a man to take a woman as his wife? There's only one place in his own city. That's a little exaggeration. Maybe the only place is too, too much. But it was the place of his family home. So on the day of the wedding, there's this ceremonial home-taking. So the groom goes to wherever his betrothed is, and he takes his betrothed home amid much ceremony and celebration and pomp, Right, And there's people that are with them. And this home to which he takes his betrothed is often the home of the groom's parents. Where the new couple stay in a separate room that's connected with the main dwelling. Whether it's an upper room, so you might have a little peasant village house. And your son is getting married. He's going to bring his betrothed home. So what do you do? You've got to find a place for him. Right? So you've got a roof. You build a little whatever you have the money for. You build a little enclosure up there for a room for them. Or you build a room onto the side of your house. Whether it was an upper room or a room built onto the side of the house, this helps us to explain the biblical language of taking a wife. It's kind of a, an expression that became more colloquial, but it was rooted in actual what they did. You took her home. The NIV even translates, and Joseph took Mary home as his wife. So it seems that it was after they arrived in Bethlehem, before Jesus was born, Joseph took Mary home as his wife. Where was Mary staying until then? I don't know. There's plenty of family and relatives probably in Bethlehem. We know that um, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were not very far away. So, and they were Mary's relatives uh, living near to Bethlehem. We don't know exactly where. Probably close enough. So perhaps she was staying with them. That's conjecture. I don't know. But they wouldn't have been living together until they were married. Notice what Luke says. Now it happened that while they were there. It's interesting how the tradition blinds us to the word while. While they were staying in Bethlehem, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Now, what is the traditional presentation of the nativity? Right? They arrive late at night. They're frantically looking for a place. She's having contractions as they look, as they knock on the doors. And they're relegated to the stable and she gives birth. That's clearly not the case. Not true. 
The clear implication is that Mary did not give birth as soon as they arrived. There was no urgent search for an inn. Instead, there's a significant period of time that passed in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. While they were there, the days were fulfilled. We might then assume, based on a comparison with Matthew, that it's during this extended period of time in Bethlehem that the wedding of Joseph and Mary, or the home-taking, was celebrated. So while they were there, he also took her home as his wife. This being the case, it seems most likely that Joseph had a home and family in Bethlehem. And that it was to this home he took Mary upon their being wed, and that it was in this home that Jesus was born. But I want to briefly mention one thing. Doesn't Luke imply that Joseph traveled to Bethlehem because of the census and not to get married? Right? The census. Well, that's a false dichotomy. The fact is that Joseph may have gone up to Bethlehem both for the census and to get married. The marriage and the census coincide. So then why does Luke mention the census at all? Well, there are two reasons. First, it's another way, and Luke is all about emphasizing Joseph is from the house and family of David. Chapter 1, he mentions it three times. So this is just another way for him to get it in, right? Another way, another avenue of emphasizing this. Why did the Roman census bring Joseph to Bethlehem? Well, think about this. There's a lot of people who went to Bethlehem for the census And they went to Bethlehem, and they were not of the house and family of David. So just because you are from Bethlehem doesn't mean you're from the house and family of David. Luke Luke just brings that in because it's just a little... It's a a, um, leaping point. That's not what I want. There's a phrase. Maybe you know what I'm thinking of. But it, it propels him to his point of the house and family of David. So why did he end up in in Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem was Joseph's place of birth. And as it happens, Bethlehem was Joseph's place of birth because he himself was of the house and family of David, who also was hailed from Bethlehem. So that just is part of the theological theme of Luke. Second, why does Luke introduce the census? Because it's a great way to show that the Roman emperor... It's not really so great after all, right? The the Roman emperor's decree is subservient to God's sovereign decree that Israel's Messiah be born in Bethlehem. And so it's another theological point. In short, here's what I'm suggesting. Joseph went up to Bethlehem not only to register with Mary uh, for the Roman census, but also to take Mary as his wife which explains why Mary went with Joseph to Bethlehem in the first place. When you read the commentaries, um, they're always wondering, now, why did Mary go with Joseph? It doesn't make sense. Because from everything we know of Roman censuses, the woman was not counted. She didn't need to be there. Even if she was counted, she was only counted as a member of Joseph's household. And she didn't need to be there to be counted as a member of his household. A man who was going to be counted didn't need to bring all his slaves and all his servants and all his people to the census to register them all. That's just not how it worked. So why did Mary have to go with Joseph? No one seems to have a clear answer to that, except perhaps the clearest answer is she had to go with him because they're getting married. That then explains why Joseph didn't say, you know what, Mary, you're pregnant It's a grueling two-week round-trip journey of 180 miles. I'm going to leave you here. I'll go register. You relax. No, Mary, you come with me. I think they're going to get married. Mary accompanied Joseph to Bethlehem because he's going to take her as his wife. Not only does it seem there's a significant period of time spent in Bethlehem before Jesus was born, which then you have to ask, where were they staying all that time? Um, but also after Jesus was born. This, is, this will help us to put this picture together. And, and by the way, the only reason this stuff has not been clear to us is because tradition has a way, for all of its good uses, 
of preserving what is good and true, it can also at times blind us to what's staring us right in the face. Tradition has that effect. And so it's something for us to be aware of in, in our Christianity. Now, there is the, I want to say that there's the capital T tradition. Some people distinguish between a lower T, a smaller case T tradition, capital T tradition. The capital T tradition is the tradition that Paul speaks of when he says that uh, he speaks of the tradition that he passed on to the churches orally. And that tradition has in large part been enshrined in the confessions, in the creeds of the early church, of the ecumenical creeds of the early church. And those creeds um, encapsulated the church's interpretation of the scriptures. And that tradition is not up for grabs, right? It's not of equal authority with the scriptures, but yet, at the same time, it represents what we believe is the authoritative interpretation of the scriptures by common consent of the church throughout the centuries and, and coming as it does, ultimately, from the apostles. So, that tradition is not like we say, well, maybe we should reevaluate that tradition. No, no. Um, but there are, there's a lowercase t tradition that we need to watch out for as Christians, so, okay, Luke chapter 2 again, what happened after Jesus was born? Well, when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise Jesus, his name, well, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, how many days is that? Forty days, Leviticus 12. Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Well, we know, first of all, Mary did not immediately travel after giving birth two weeks and 190 miles back to Nazareth. Second of all, or I'm sorry, one week travel back to Nazareth. Second of all, you would no sooner get back than you'd have to turn right around and make a week-long journey back to Judea. Another 90-mile trip. There's no way they did that with a newborn baby when they had to be back in less than six weeks. Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem. Nazareth is 90 miles from Jerusalem. So we know from the offering Mary presented for her purification. When she went to the temple, she brought an offering, a pair of turtle doves and, or two young pigeons, that they were not wealthy. That means we should be pretty sure they weren't paying for an inn for all 40 of those days that they were still in Bethlehem. Neither should we imagine they were living in a stable all of that time. So where were they living? If they weren't paying for an inn, they weren't staying in a stable, well, again, it seems best to assume they were living in their own lodgings, most likely Joseph's family home, the home where Joseph took Mary to be his wife, and where Jesus was born. After the 40 days, let's move ahead. After the 40 days are over, they've gone up to Jerusalem already. They presented Jesus at the temple. Mary has presented the offering for her purification. And then where do they go? Well, naturally you'd think they went back to Nazareth. But as it happens, they went back to Bethlehem and stayed there. How do we know that? Well, we can read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, but I'm not going to read all of that now. I'm just going to say, when the Magi from the east came to see Jesus, where did they find Jesus? Which village? We know they found him in Bethlehem, right? Now, we know that Joseph fled from Bethlehem to Egypt as soon as the Magi had departed for their own country. And it is important to get out. And it, the, the text is, ex, is explicit. The, the angel came to him at, when the Magi had departed, the angel came to him at night, and he got up in the night and left. Okay? So the Magi leave, and they're gone. They're out of there. Well, where do we put the 40 days of waiting to go up to present Jesus and for Mary's purification? So the Magi did not arrive on the night of Jesus' birth. They did not arrive when the shepherds were there. 
they arrived after the 40 days for the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus. Therefore, well, that's what I already said. The other clue that the Magi arrived in Bethlehem after the 40 days is that Mary gave the the offering of the poor. Now, once the Magi have given them gold and frankincense and myrrh, could, could Joseph and Mary afford the lamb for the offering of purification? Yes. But they still only presented the two turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's for the poor. So the long and the short of this is that after the 40 days for Mary's purification, Joseph and Mary returned home to Bethlehem. They continued living there until after the Magi had come and gone and they were warned by the angel to flee immediately to Egypt. That means they could have been there another couple of weeks living in Bethlehem or several months at the most. And where were Joseph and Mary living in Bethlehem? Well, Matthew tells us that coming into the house... The Magi saw the child with Mary, his mother. What house was this in Bethlehem? And by the way, if the Magi came at the same time the shepherds came, there is proof positive that they were not in a stable. They were in a house. But the Magi didn't come the same time the shepherds came. Later on, we know they were in a house. Um, And what house is this? Very likely, in fact, I would say almost certainly, Joseph's family home. The same home where he took Mary to be his wife. The same home where Jesus was born. We know that it was from his hometown of Bethlehem that Joseph fled with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. And now here's my question to you. Let's move ahead one more step in the chronology. When it was finally safe for Joseph and Mary and Jesus to return from Egypt back to their homeland, where did they go? Matthew chapter 2, 22-23. When Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, which Judea is where Bethlehem is located, in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go to Judea. Now why do we need to be told he's afraid to go to Judea? if his home is in Galilee. So this implies that Bethlehem was the place to which Joseph would naturally have returned. It's safe to go back. Yes, let's go home. Home to Bethlehem. But then, ah, he hears that in fact it's not safe to go there. And so then after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Judea, to his family home in Bethlehem, He departed for the district of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And why did he go to Nazareth? Well, at the human level, because that's where his wife is from. Mary is from Nazareth. At the level of God's divine plan and purpose, it was so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's the big picture. So let's... Zero in for just a few moments here to the smaller details of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. And I believe it will all fall into place for us. Luke chapter 2 verse 7. Now it happened that while they were staying there in Bethlehem, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because they did not have a place to lay him in their apartment. Now, of course, we wonder where apartment came from, because that doesn't have the same, I have in parentheses, sentimental ring, that there was no room for them in the inn has. I do believe that the inn has become somehow romanticized. Now, 
If the inn is a historical fact in detail, there's no reason to throw it out. We don't throw something out simply because we did something bad to it, right? But if the inn is not, in fact, historical, then maybe we need to rethink. So I'll let you decide, of course, you will always do this anyway, and it's what we ought to do. Decide for yourself. The Greek word, kataluma. It's a generic word. It refers to any kind of lodging. Luke uses this very same word in chapter 22 of his own gospel to refer to a guest room of a private home. So in Luke 22, we read, And you shall say to the owner of the house, Jesus says to his disciples, The teacher says to you, Where is the the inn in which I may eat the Passover? Now, we don't have any tradition of Jesus eating the Passover in an inn. We do have not just the tradition, but the clear testimony of Scripture, that he ate the Passover in a guest room, the Cataluma. And he will show you a large, furnished, upper room, prepare the Passover there. So, a guest room, um, it might be large, it might be big, it might be small and tiny, it might be an upper room, it might be an attached room onto the side of the house. In light of the fact that Luke uses Cataluma to refer to the guest room of a private home in chapter 22. And in light of the fact that it already appears from the big picture we've just been looking at this morning, that Jesus was born in a private home, Joseph's family home, it seems most natural and obvious to translate in Luke chapter 2 because there was no place for them in the guest room of the home, of the private home. In fact, when Luke wants to refer to an inn, he has a word for inn. And when he wants to refer to an innkeeper, which, by the way, there's no innkeeper in the text of Luke, chapter 2, but when he wants to refer to an innkeeper, he has a word for innkeeper. Look at Luke chapter 10. And the Samaritan came to the Jew who had been beaten and robbed. This is the good Samaritan account. And he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. That is not the word that Luke uses in Luke 2 for where Jesus, there was no... There was no place in the guest room, the kataluma. This is the word for in, pandukeon. And he took care of him. And on the next day, the the good Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. There's the same derived word from in. And he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So here's my point, brothers and sisters. Luke knows the specific word for in. And he uses it in chapter 11. Luke does not use the word for in in the story of Jesus' birth. He simply does not. Now, it's a word that can refer to something like an in. It can refer to that. It's very generic and broad. Um, but, But nevertheless, now we have to determine what does it refer to. He uses, he uses the word that he uses elsewhere to refer to the guest room of a private home. So based on how he uses it elsewhere, it's natural to assume he uses it the same way here. This fits perfectly with the idea that Joseph married Mary while they were in Bethlehem, that they were now living in Joseph's family home, where there was a guest chamber or a marital room set aside for the newly married couple. Maybe we could call his guest chamber their apartment lodgings. So what does Luke mean when he says that they did not have a place to lay him in their apartment? Now, the rest of that translation gets into some of the Greek. It's, 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 the, it's actually the more appropriate translation, but people didn't want to translate it that way because they didn't make sense with the idea that it was an inn. So it got, got messed up. But that's the natural way. I believe he just means that their one-room apartment lodging was too tiny and cramped to accommodate their new baby. This is a, this is a peasant village Judean home. We have to remember that this apartment lodging was not a suite with their own kitchen sink and bathroom and all of this. This apartment 
the lodging was basically the place where they just slept. And where did he do the rest of your living? In the main room of the family home. Of live, of. So perhaps, perhaps there were plans to build a larger apartment, I'm conjecturing, a larger apartment onto the house as soon as possible, but for right now, there was no convenient place in their current apartment for them to lay their newborn baby. Now, I think we need to be careful about one thing. Notice Luke does not say anything about how Joseph and Mary were ostracized because she was pregnant out of wedlock. Luke only gives the reason of practical necessity. There was not a place for them to lay him. Now, what about ostracized? I'm not saying people looked down on them or spread rumors or, you know, all of this. But I would say this. The character of Joseph and Mary was above reproach and known to all. All of their friends, all their relatives, all their acquaintances. After all, God chose Mary, not because of her intrinsic, her own worthiness, but because of his grace in her, that she was beloved and most blessed of women, right? Because of what God was doing for her. So their character was known. Joseph's family, and certainly Mary's family, likely believed their independent accounts of the angelic visitations. Joseph, I'm sure, told, said, the angel visited me. Mary told her family and Joseph's family, the angel visited me. They, their reputation is known. And by the way, there's someone else who could give testimony to them. And that's Mary's relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also pregnant in her old age. They've received angelic visitations. And they can also testify. What did Elizabeth say when Mary came to visit? Blessed, how blessed I am that the mother of my Lord should visit me. So, we can, we can leave out all ideas that they were relegated to a stable because no one wanted anything to do with them. Luke doesn't hint at that, and there's no reason to think of that. So what about the manger? This is perhaps the simplest part of all. Even today, peasant families in certain cultures, today, will bring their animals into their house at night, whether, whether at night or in inclement weather. So I'm going to quote here from one, but you, you can research this on your own. In first century Judean village houses, typically, this is not unusual, it's the typical case, the main room was divided into two sections. So let's just put the next slide up. You can look at that. There's the main room. The guest room's over there. The Cataluma. Here's the main room. There's the stable. Uh, we can use the word stable. That's fine. But it's, we have to be careful because we think of stable, we think of one thing, and it's not. So the stable was part of the house. It was only divided by the fact that it's on a, on a lower, slightly lower level. So they would, a, a, a peasant family might have a lamb or, or a goat, right? Or something like that. And, and they wouldn't have much, but they would have maybe one or two or three animals, maybe at the most. At night, they would bring their family animals into their house, and the animals would even provide a little additional warmth, I'm told. I don't know. I have a hard time imagining that, especially in a cold night, but maybe that's true. And then the mangers um, could be either hollowed-out depressions in the floor of the main room, um, or... Or a per, certainly a wooden structure trough for the for hay for feed. So typically the main room divided into two sections. I think I, I said it all. So, in other words, Mary wrapped Jesus in cloths and laid him in a manger that was located not in their tiny guest room where there was no room to lay him. It was too cramped, but in the larger main room of Joseph's family home. We can assume that the manger was thoroughly cleaned and lined with some kind of bedding. Now, what kind of bedding do you think? Again, total conjecture. My only point in even asking the question 
is if they had a lamb and they sheared a lamb, or maybe they had wool around the house, maybe he was, he was asleep on the wool. I don't know that he was asleep on the hay. But whatever kind of bedding it was, I'm sure that Jesus was made as comfortable as could be. And we also know that any animals were kept away from the manger and most likely kept outside. So I'm not sure that we can describe this as rude and bare. I think that's not fair to Mary. Or to first century Judean uh, mores and and norms and and hospitality. Um, The presence of animals, where did the animals come from in our nativity depictions? Well, number one, the manger. We've we've taken the manger and said, oh, they must have been outcasts in a stable, separated from everyone else, because of our, our cultural assumptions. Or, or also, but there's another reason, the presence of animals in traditional nativity scenes is largely due to medieval artists who would often depict an ox and a donkey knowing Jesus. So you might see in some of the pictures, the ox and the donkey are gazing at Jesus. They're gazing at Jesus because they recognize him as the Lord. Whereas Israel does not recognize Jesus as the Lord. It's a, it's a point they're making. So they, they were seeing this as a kind of fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, which says, An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not perceive. Whatever the reality, whatever the reason we always have animals in our nativity scenes, the reality is the Bible never says that there were any animals present at Jesus' birth or at any time while he was laid in the manger. In fact, it seems almost certain that the animals would not have been present. And so we see that there was... Now, before I say this, we all know what a Grinch is, right? The question is, is this Grinchy to us? Is that what this is? And perhaps if it is, I, 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 I want you to know, I, I do not come here because I delight in spoiling everyone's Christmas fun. That's not what I want to do. I want to actually bring us back to saying, what's our, what's our authority? And what are the ways that sentiment and tradition can affect our, our approach to Scripture and our approach to the celebration of Christmas. Whether rightly or wrongly or good or bad, I have said for myself that Christmas, if we have Christmas, Christmas is our Christmas service, and that's it. The rest of it is the holidays to me. So, opening presents to me, I know, we, we, and it's not, it's not but I, I think what I'm trying to grapple with and struggle with is, and I know holidays means holy days, but besides the background of the word, I just separate it from Christmas. So I, I, think, I think that I'm nervous and concerned about what we have done with Christmas. So, that's my desire, not to be a Grinch. But actually, there's another reason I've done this this morning, and I'm excited to get there in just a moment. We, can, uh, we see then that there was no inn, there was no innkeeper, there was no desperate search for lodging, there was no stable in the traditional sense of that word, and there likely were not any animals. On the other hand, there almost certainly was extended family present for the birth, most likely other local women, which was tradition. Other local women would attend the birth and welcoming, they were all there welcoming Mary's firstborn baby into the world. And it was likely to these people who were all gathered at the birth of Jesus 
that the shepherds told what they heard from the angels. It's right there staring us in the face, but we're blinded by tradition. We can't see it. Now maybe we can see it, Luke chapter 2. So the shepherds went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Okay, that doesn't mean that no one else was there. It's just the main people are Mary, Joseph, and the baby. And then when it says, and when they had seen this, when they saw it, they made known the statement. The language of Luke implies that they made known the statement while they're still there at the house. But let's see more evidence for this. The statement which had been told them about this child. Luke uses the demonstrative pronoun, this child. The, he, he's vividly describing that the shepherds are there in the house, describing what the angels had told him about this child that they're looking at right now together. Imagine the moment in the house when the shepherds are telling what the angels told them. And then it says, and all who heard it, telling us that there's more than just Joseph and Mary in the house at the birth of Jesus. All who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. And then what does it say? But Mary, she's one of them there in the house, but Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart, and then, now what happens? The shepherds went back. Glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. I believe it's without a doubt, not willing to go to the stake for it, but without a doubt, that that was a full house of loving people. And so even as God provided for the burial of Jesus at the end, so God also provided for the birth of Jesus at the beginning. Jesus was born into a humble, a very humble, but warm and loving peasant home and laid in a manger, converted to serve very, very nicely as a cradle. Now, you might have one question left. We're going to come to that in a minute. But let me just, in wrapping this up, over 400 years ago, the traditional view of the nativity was challenged, and the man who challenged it was brought to the Spanish Inquisition. 166 years ago, in 1857, a Presbyterian missionary to Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, based on his reading of scripture and on his experiences in those cultures, wrote, It is my impression that the birth actually took place in an ordinary house of some common peasant and that the baby was laid in one of the mangers such as are still found in the dwellings of farmers in this region. Today, just I want you to know, it's not just me saying this, um, Answers in Genesis, a, a conservative, certainly, place, Reformed Baptist Seminary, where I went to school. Um, you can find a great book online. Kenneth Bailey talks about this. So let me ask you again now the question, why then is the traditional nativity scene still so universally accepted? So, here's some questions for us. If someone was not convinced by the biblical testimony as we have seen it this morning, but still believed Jesus was born as an outcast in a stable, what might, and I italicize might, I circle it in my, in my notes, what might this tell us about his commitment to the authority of tradition over the authority of the scriptures? Or, if, and I say if, if we are convinced by this biblical testimony, but there's this little nagging thing in us that says, wait a minute, what just happened? I think I've been robbed of so much of what Christmas has been for me over all these years. What might this tell us about how we've sentimentalized Christmas and then to some extent our Christianity? After all, I'll ask again, is Christmas the inn and the stable and the animals? Or is it the birth of Jesus, the Messiah? Or is it both? Finally, 
if we are convinced by this biblical testimony, can we still, in good conscience, put up the traditional nativity scenes and sing Christmas carols with oxen lowing and Jesus being born in a cattle shed? So that's where I struggle. So when we sing Christmas carols, there's many Christmas carols we don't sing here because of some of these issues and others. But then there's ones that we do sing where I'm changing the words. The reason is not because I'm just, that's Timothy, right? The reason is because it's not what it says. If so, if we say, well, I can still sing the songs, and we can still put that up. There's nothing sinful about that. Are you telling me that there's sin in putting that up? No, no. But I would ask what that might tell us about the ways we've turned the story of Jesus' birth into the equivalent of a fairy tale that comes in different versions I did think about, what about a nativity that we put out in front of a church or a home as almost like a reminder to our culture of what Christmas is really about? So should we, isn't there some good in that? Because if I put out a house with a guest room on the side, no one's going to get that, right? So is there still some benefit and value in putting the nativity out? I don't know. That's for you to decide. I'm not, my point is not to um, create a test now of orthodoxy by which we all judge one another. You know, some, when we preached on worship and I brought up the example of coffee in church, um, uh, there would be times when someone would have, uh, maybe it was coffee, I don't know, but it was a drink of some kind, and they would make a comment to me about, oh, it's, it's this or it's that. And honestly, I want to assure you, I didn't even notice. I didn't even notice that they had it. I just want you to know, after I preach a sermon, it's what I preach here. When I go down, I don't look around and say, oh, I, I, I see you with your drink. You know, it's not, it's not what I'm doing, and it's not what I want anyone else to do. If I see you have the traditional nativity scene in your house or out in your yard, I, I, that's your business. It's your business, and I'm not thinking bad thoughts of you. And I don't want anyone else to do the same. But I do want to challenge us. So, at the deeper level then, my question to you is this. Is our Christianity rooted in the historical record of Scripture or is it rooted in tradition? And let me say this. Is our Christianity something that's been romanticized and sentimentalized? Or is it truly the result of the new birth and of the Spirit's witness within us to Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, that's our Christianity. R.T. France writes, the problem with the stable, as it's traditionally depicted, is that it distances Jesus from the rest of us. It puts even his birth in a unique setting, in some ways as remote from life as if he had been born in Caesar's palace. See, the birth of Jesus, as it's been traditionally depicted, is very exceptional. As exceptional, in some ways, as being born in Caesar's palace. But the message of the incarnation is that Jesus is one of us. He came to be what we are, and it fits well with this theology that his birth, in fact, took place in a normal, crowded, warm, welcoming Judean home, just like many another Jewish boy of his time. Granted, it's not very romantic. In fact, it's utterly common, out of the, uh, not ex- unextraordinary, unexceptional, mundane. And that's the point. So then, our last question. What is the sign of the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger? What is the sign? Now, I want to 
we talked about this at our breakfast table this morning. Uh, you might ask, were other babies ever laid in a manger? But I have no doubt they were. Well, you know, as Andrea was saying, what a perfect place to lay a baby if you don't have, if you're not rich and you don't have something else. I mean, a, a, a manger would be a perfect suited as a cradle. So, were other babies ever laid in mangers? I, I'm, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. I don't know that it was the most common thing. So what is the sign of the baby in a manger? Though it's not rejection, it's not ostracism. The point is that God's Messiah, the King of Israel, has come into this world as one of the lowly in order that he might raise up the lowly and the poor in spirit and in order that he might humble the proud and the mighty of this world. The point of the manger is its theology. You know, Jesus died on a cross, right? And we're, we're so, it's all, so about Jesus dying on a cross, we forget that thousands of other people died on crosses. Right? Did the cross still have meaning? Yes, it had a theological meaning, because cursed is he who was hanged on a tree. And also because the cross was the execution place of a common criminal. Where everyone was, where all sorts of people were executed. That's what Jesus died on. Same thing for the manger. Were other babies laid in mangers? Probably. But what does the manger mean for us? What does it mean when the Messiah is laid in a manger? Oh. It means that God's Messiah came into this world as one of the lowly in order to raise up the lowly, to raise up the poor in spirit, in order to bring down and to humble the proud and the mighty of this world. So we're reminded of Mary exulting over God's promise to her in the birth of her son. This is what Mary said. God has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Here's, you know, here's, not yet, but we know, we see Jesus in a manger. This is how God brings rulers down from their thrones. By sending his son into the world in a peasant, common Judean home, like any other baby boy was in that day. And he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So the sign of Jesus wrapped in claws and lying in a manger compels us. When, do you see it? Do you see the picture now? It compels us to ask if we are the humble. If we are truly the poor in spirit. Are we those that he came to exalt? Are we among them? The sign of Jesus wrapped in claws and lying in a manger is that God's Messiah has come into this world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we see. How much more then should we be willing in the context of the verse I just quoted, Jesus makes this point, to be the servants and the slaves of one another. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that the lesson, the sign of the manger would be impressed upon our hearts even now as we see the Lord of all, the eternal word made flesh, come into this world in the most unexceptional, the most common, the most ordinary circumstances of all. Not only unexceptional, common, and ordinary, but, but in, the, in the common and ordinary, warm, loving home of a, of a peasant family made like us. Lord, as we gaze upon that scene and that picture, and as we then move ahead to see the scene of Jesus not lying in the manger but hanging on the cross, let us violently put to death the pride that lives within us. Let us be humbled. Let us be slaves and servants of one another. 
And Father, I also pray that you would help us to carefully navigate our, our Christianity. That we guard against a dangerous kind of sentimentality, romanticism, or commitment to tradition. And that we truly embrace the authority of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to sing and celebrate again the birth of our Savior and all that it means for us. Help us, as we do this, to truly and faithfully prepare our hearts to take of the bread and the cup, which symbolizes the body and the blood of our, of our Lord, shed and broken for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.